Welcome back to the Talking Your Way to Change podcast, the show that educates you about optimal mental health. I'm the host, Dr. Zan Banker. Welcome back to the Talking Your Way to Change podcast, the show that educates you about optimal mental health. I'm the host, Dr. Zan Banker. Welcome to another episode of Talking Your Way to Change. I'm the host, Dr. Zan Banker. I'm so excited and appreciative to have our guest today, Anna Sturk. Anna Sturk is a licensed marriage and family therapist who owns her own practice, providing individual therapy, relational therapy, and supervision. I first met Anna when our daughters were in kindergarten together. I ran into her at a science fair this year. Briefly, we discussed couples counseling. Um, And she had introduced me to Terry Real and what was called relational life therapy. And she had recommended a book called Fierce Intimacy, which I bought and found very helpful in my work um, with couples and individuals. Um, And she's here today to share with us what is relational life therapy. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited too. Um, Can you share with us a little bit about your background in in your services or interest in Terry Reel's uh, relational life therapy? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Back in the day, I started doing in-home right out of uh, in-home therapy uh, right out of grad school. Um, And then um, and and that's where I really first sort of fell in love with doing relational work. Um, I loved working with families right in their home environment. Um, uh, Eventually, I moved on to the EMILY program where um, I was clinical manager of intensive programs at our St. Paul location. And... um, but while I was there, I, I got to focus on a lot of the couples, working with couples within eating disorders, which is not always um, something that does have a focus when you're doing eating disorder work, because often the work is so acute with the patient. Um, but, but we started to try to bring in some uh, couples work alongside with uh, the, the client work and Um, that's where I really started to deepen my understanding about doing couples work. It was always a draw for me. Um, And so I went to my first Terry Real seminar in um, April of 2012 and was totally hooked in that first, you know, I remember sitting there thinking like, oh my gosh, this is life-changing. This is totally life-changing. And I will say without a lot of hubris that in fact, it has been totally life-changing. Um, it's been life-changing in terms of my client work. It's been life-changing in terms of my own self. Um, and it's it's just uh, like, it is not just a way of doing therapy, but it is an actual way of living your life. And that's the thing that relational life therapy tries to teach clients and folks is, is actually shifting into a relational way of living your life. Yes, that's what I've sort of really got gotten from it. Like I've been studying a few different couples therapists and it feels like, um, like, for example, I've been studying Gottman and um, 
just, you know, you learn a lot about the research and you learn about what is happening in couples who report a lot of satisfaction in their marriages, but it Mm -hmm. isn't necessarily something that you would necessarily, it didn't seem to me that you would integrate into all of your relationships or sort of your profound kind of look on life. Um, And Mm -hmm. it feels like, you know, this, I mean, you'll get into it, sort of the idea of um, a more feministic or relational way of living is just so front and center with us today, I think, too, in the world in terms of politics and what's going on. So absolutely. Yeah. Um, The thing about relational life therapy, RLT, um, is the acronym. So you'll sometimes hear me use that as a stand-in for relational life therapy. And that's what I'm talking about is um, when I say RLT is I'm talking about relational life therapy, which by the by is um, it, it was developed by Terry Real. Um, and uh, you can go to terryreal.com uh, to check out resources and check out what his work is. Um, uh, and we can talk more about that in a, a little later on, but just to, I want to be really clear that this is like, this is his work that I have adapted and taken in and use in my practice. And have Correct. been um, uh, trained in, um, but essentially the thing about relational life therapy and, and relational living in general is it's not just about living relationally with the people around you. It's about also living relationally with yourself. Um, that your relationship with yourself is is often the origin of many of your relationships, just as the origin with your family is often how you come into relationship with yourself. So it's a, a really reciprocal experience about living, living relationally is really about um, not just doing that in some parts of your life, but it's about shifting how you live in relation to all parts of your life, including yourself. And interestingly, uh, you know, the way that people come to relational life therapy, just because of the languaging of the name is that most people come to it because of couples work, like they, they've got a spouse that drags them to it, or they uh, become interested in it themselves. Terry Real's book, The New Rules of Marriage, he's also written a couple of other books. Um, I just don't want to talk about it, The Legacy, the Secret Legacy of Male Depression. Mm-hmm. And also, How Can I Get Through to You are two of his other books. Those are his early work. The um, Fierce Intimacy is a is um, a, a, is an audiobook format of, of The New Rules of Marriage. Um, and so uh, a lot of people come to his work because they're looking for help around their relationship. And then um, whether they start, read the book or they go to a, a relationship school, skills boot camp, which we can also talk a little bit more about, um, they start to notice or they, or they come see an RLT therapist. Um, and the Twin Cities, by the way, is like rich, deep rich in terms of there's a whole bunch of us. We have a big community of RLT therapists here. We're really lucky in the Twin Cities that there are a number of people who have, who have been trained for years by Terry. Um, uh, not all parts of the country have that. So it's kind of nice that here in the cities we have that. Um, but the, when people start doing relational living, they are thinking of it often in terms of change in their relationship with their primary intimate partner. But as they uh, get deeper into it, they start to say, oh, you know, it's weird because um, at work, I'm getting along so much better with my coworkers. I just noticed that like, I'm not as bothered anymore. Or, um, you know, that thing with my mom, it's just not so present with 
for me anymore. Or, you know, like they really notice that the uh, relational living is not just about your primary intimate partner, but it's all over the place, your kids, your friends, your coworkers and yourself. Yeah. I like where we, yes. And I like where you started too, where you were talking about, about the relationship with yourself piece. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, and we'll get into it more, but just sort of thinking about, um, he talks a lot about self-esteem and we'll get into that. But anyway, yes, in thinking about the concepts and how pervasive some of our ways of looking at other people and then kind of comparing it back to yourself, it was, Mm -hmm. it's just been sort of amazing to me. Um, it's almost like a spiritual practice too. I mean, absolutely. Anyway. Yeah, we would, we would say that in RLT, um, that like the relational living is like a spiritual practice. It's, it's, or like, um, a mindfulness practice. It's a thing that you do daily. It's a thing that you do minute by minute. It's not, um, I often say to clients, yeah, that it's not the goal that you get at the end. It's not like, ta-da, I'm living relationally, done. Like, that's not <laughs> how it works ever. Um, what it By counting how is, many friends you have. Just exactly. Like <laughs> no, relational living is about the daily practice of living relationally. So maybe you practice yoga, maybe you practice meditation, maybe you practice prayer, maybe you practice um, a regular attendance in a faith community. Those are all things that you practice, but aren't ever completed. And that's, that's kind of how relational living is that it is a thing we do. And we have the choice in a minute by minute, moment by moment way. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that is a, is a big difference. I think in when we do relational life therapy with folks is that we're not just there to teach skills, but we're there to teach how to shift into that space of relational living within yourself. And that that's a thing you do over and over and over again, not just once. I think that's why it's kind of hard to like, even I'm noticing even even as we're talking about this and maybe just sort of laying the foundation of a lot of the therapies that I've studied, I do feel like this one is a l- kind of a little bit hard to get a handle on because I think it is affecting so many different layers. It's not just skills. It's not just the couple. It's kind of pervasive for all of your relationships, how you view yourself, how you view the world. And maybe that's what I was thinking about in terms of yourself, that last piece of like, it is like a practice that you're sort of filtering all of your thoughts or behaviors. It's like, how am I operating in the world? I just had that thought. How is that, you know, in terms of the relational model, where does that fall? Absolutely. Am I I kind of putting myself above someone or below someone Mm or? Yeah. But maybe you could start with just sort of the basics of, you know, um, what it is. Yeah. Sort of describe it to people. Sure. Well, um, it really ties in nicely with what you just said, because uh, Terry is fond of saying it's it's one of the one of the things that we say in all of the relational uh, life uh, skills boot camps that we do. That other workshops will teach you skills. RLT works with the part of you that doesn't want to use them. Yes, like that's the core of of relational living is that. There is a 
the like we all we from an the you often when we talk about couples work we talk about attachment and and RLT it's like doing relational life relational living um at its core is centered around the idea of attachment that it like being in a securely attached relationship is our birthright it is how we are born to be is to live relationally however um it's it's not so easy to do and it's not something that we we uh come to just kind of naturally because it's not how we're socialized we're not socialized into relational living um so it we work with the it, it's not just about like learning the skills to communicate better it's about getting in touch with the part of us that actually does yearn for relationship and can be in relationship. Um, and that's kind of the, you'll hear me use the language of um, adaptive child and wise adult. Um, and the wise adult is the part that can be in an intimate relationship and be both connected and protected, hold themselves and others in warm regard, essentially use the skills of relational living. But the adaptive child, which is the place that most of us operate out of on a daily basis, if we're kind of running unchecked, um, that part has no interest actually in using any kind of relational skills. It may say that it wants intimacy, but at its core, the the main um, the, the the like the primary thing that the adaptive part of us is after is protection. It wants to protect itself at any cost. And at any cost is generally very non-relational. It's not very, uh, it's not very intimate. It's not very connected. The adaptive child has just the one agenda. I'm in danger. I must protect. And sometimes it does that through trying to be enmeshed with and control, um, which is when we are on the more boundaryless side. And sometimes it does it through walling off and getting away and avoiding. So when when we when we've talked before you've mentioned something about when we look at how this type of couples counseling is different from others other type of couples counseling what are those? Yeah, absolutely. So um again, we're focus uh, when I'm doing relational life therapy with couples um one of the big things that is different is the stance of the therapist. Um, relational life therapists in general tend to be very active in session with clients. Um, th there are great therapists out there that do, you know, nice empathic listening and reflective listening. RLT therapists tend not to do that so much. We, I mean, we do that. We certainly do active listening and, and reflective listening, but we tend to be really active in terms of challenging non-relational behavior that we see in session. So we take an active role of calling out um, behaviors that we think are not in alignment with the health of the relationship as the clients have talked about wanting their relationship to be. Um, so, you know, we, we are not always, um, Neutral. Uh, and we're not neutral. No, we, we, and which goes really against sort of the old school couple therapy model where you try to be neutral 
to um, the to both members of the couple and you know nobody feels upset and everybody gets heard. Problem is, is that if couples it, and couples come to me all the time and they'll report this experience that they'll say, you know, we went to another one, two, three, five uh, relational therapists, uh, couples therapists. And what happened is we would go into session and we would fight. Um, and then the couples therapist would ask us how we felt about the fight. And then that would kind of be it. Um, and that is, and I think that that is sort of one of the things that can happen when the a therapist doesn't take sides against bad behavior is that you can end up with couples just coming in and like fighting the same fight um, in session that they fight at home. And RLT therapists tend to interview um, and work with the part that's showing up in session that's not being very relational. That's not, by, that's not able to be in that um, wise adult space. And we try and get at what's going on um, that that person has gotten pulled out of their wise adult space. And so uh, that's one of the things that is really different. I, I tell couples that I'm always on, I'm actually always on the side of the relationship. Like it may seem like I'm taking sides against one of them at one time or another, but I'm, I'm not, I'm just on the side of the relationship. I'm yeah, not on the side of was, any one person. I'm on the side of the relationship. The relationship. And, and so sometimes that, them. yeah. That yeah. sometimes that means that I'm going to be really direct uh, uh, in in trying to help somebody um, be in in touch with what's going on with them. And but I'm always coming from a really compassionate place because I'm just as likely to fall out on any given day as anybody else. Yes. So is there some buy-in in the beginning of the therapy then about what is relational behavior? Are you kind of teaching people, you know? Uh, you know, this, I'm going to be looking for ways of relating that I think are going to be sort of destructive to the relationship or enhancing of the relationship. And you're kind of asking their permission, maybe at the beginning of the therapy? Um, in some ways, yes. Um, part of, part of the thing that um, I would say to couples is that they're there in the office or, you know, now over, um, Zoom over yeah. teletherapy, um, yes. which is, you know, 100% of my practice at this point and, and will be for the any foreseeable future. Um, and, which, and, and it works great, incidentally, to do it that way. But the reason why people are there to do the therapy is because somebody's unhappy with how it's going. So I, I'm not here to say what is right and what is wrong for the relationship, but I'm more here to listen to what's going on within the couple and, and, you know, say like, you can, you know, we, 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 we've got a lot of like sayings in RLT. And okay. one of those things is you can be right or you can be married. So, you know, people will come in and they'll be like, you know, my partner should get over that thing that they're, that they're having trouble with. And I'll say, well, you know, listen, Mr. or Mrs. X, um, I've got some bad news for you. Your partner's not getting over that thing. And so you can be right that they should get over it or you can be married. Yes. Um, and when I'm saying that now, you know, it, it might come across a little bit like uh, abrupt, but in the session, I don't, it, my clients don't report feeling that way um, because 
part of the stance of the RLT therapist, part of the stance that I take as a therapist with my clients is one of deep, warm regard, because that is, again, a, a, a foundational part of RLT therapy, of living relationally, is this idea of holding yourself and others in warm regard. So when a client is showing up in session, they might be doing something that their partner finds totally egregious. And I might think to myself, well, and that totally egregious too. However, as the therapist, I can have some warm regard for why you're doing it and also say you probably shouldn't keep on doing that because it's not so helpful for your relationship. You're driving your partner totally nuts. And you might not have noticed that, but let me be here and help you. <laughs> let me highlight that <laughs> to the degree that I can. And that's one of the things that, again, we're trying to get people to come into contact with what is actually happening. And a lot of times, you know, people will take the the stance of like, yeah, but they shouldn't be so bothered by that. Or I don't understand what the issue is. And we kind of try to move past that to say like, yeah, but how's it working that they are that bothered by that? Is that a thing that you really want to take to the mat and say, no, I, I absolutely need to keep doing this. Or, or are you willing to make a change for the good of your relationship? And I'll tell you, by and large, in the end, most people would rather save their relationship if that's what they're doing in therapy, you know? Yes. That's why they're coming, but. Mm -hmm. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Well, one of the things that I was thinking that would be helpful to talk about was um, this idea of the relational grid um, or something that sort of looks at, I think Terry real, said at some point in his career, like he had been really thinking a lot about, you know, self-esteem and mm -hmm. also boundaries. And then he sort of found a way to kind of put them together mm -hmm. and talk about how they intersect. But maybe we could just talk about the um, self-esteem piece first and yeah. how important that is for us to be able to sort of regulate and how that impacts how we live relationally. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um um, what, so you just mentioned the relational grid. So the relational grid is, um, is essentially a grid that lays out the intersection between self-esteem and boundaries, as you said, and it's, it's a, t the relational grid is about, and this is what, this is how you live it out as an, as an adult. And this is the adaptive mechanisms that you have you have developed to get through in the world. So that's what the is really getting at is like, what's the adaptive stance? And um, I'll, I'll just say this as a side note. I just, I just was on a, a, a training call with Terry um, today and he has uh, shifted his languaging. We used to call it the functional adult is in the okay. center of the grid. Yeah. And um, he's shifted his languaging to talk about wise adult, which I am really excited about um, that shift because actually part of the problem with um, using the functional adult language is that the adaptive child stances, which that's what the, that's what is on the grid. Um, okay. These are and the just, adaptive Just to stances. slow you down for one second. Yeah, so I'm sorry. I get so excited about this stuff. I know. I know. <laughs> me too. So, but may, maybe just to sort of conceptualize. So your adaptive, mm -hmm. did you say adaptive child? Mm -hmm. That is sort of how we functioned in our childhood and our family of origin 
that worked well or allowed us to survive? Exactly. It's what we learned to do to get our needs met, essentially. And it the the reason why this shift in language is, is so useful is because it's often very functional, but it's not relational. Like yes. it might really work, right? It might okay. really work in the short term to like, in an immediate sort of way, get your needs met or give you some sense of control or give you some sense of being okay or make you feel better in the short term. But in the long term, it's not, it does not lend itself to relational living. It does not lend itself to um, content, happy, successful, uh, connected, intimate relationship. And so the, the adaptive stances are the things that we learned how to do to get through. And we, we start by saying those are the things we learned in childhood to get through. That's often where we form our ideas about that. But truly, our adaptive stances can, um, can be really impacted by our intimate relationship. So we might have been at one point, you know, in, in other relationships in our life, but then in our current intimate relationship, on a bad day, this is where we show up. And it might have moved. Um, so when we're, when we work with the relational grid, we're asking people to think about what do you do on a bad day now in this current intimate relationship? Where do you go on a bad day? I, I use this with individuals that are even not coupled. Um, and so I just ask them to think of in your most recent intimate relationships, um, where do you go on a bad day? Or like in, if intimate relationships aren't, aren't even the focus, like where do you go in the parts of your life that feel like they're not working very well? So mm-hmm. the adaptive child stance, one of the things that I, I heard you talk about briefly was the first consciousness, second consciousness. I think you mentioned that. Um, that's essentially the movement that we, our first consciousness is our adaptive stance. It's the place we go when, um, when we, uh, here's a piece of language that I often use is a whoosh. So Terry uses that language whoosh. It's like the feeling of it comes from the bottom of your feet all the way up through your body. And you absolutely have to respond in this way right now. It feels imperative. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a thing that when I talk about with clients, most people can really, I will be like, oh yeah, I totally know what that feels like. That feeling of like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm right there. You know, I'm right there. I want to act this way. I kind of know I shouldn't, but I can't stop myself. But I can't stop myself. (laughs) I feel too good. (laughs) Yep. Whoosh. Um, And that, that is our, that's our first consciousness. That's our adaptive child stance. That's our adaptive stance. It's the thing that feels imperative to do right now. And incidentally, um, this training that I was just in with Terry, there have been some really cool things going on in terms of actually studying um, the brain changes that happen as a result result of RLT therapy. Um, And uh, the there's an RLT therapist who is also a neuroscientist and a neuropsychologist. And she has been able to identify that that whoosh takes an eighth of a second. Just I to say that again, it. an totally eighth of a it. second. So it's a, it's like a complete, whew, I'm, I'm like fully engulfed in this response that feels 
Like it is the only thing that I can respond with in this moment. And that's our, that's our, that's called first consciousness. We also in RLT call it adaptive child response. Okay. And so the work of RLT is about being able to identify um, what that adaptive response is. Like what's the thing, like what are we likely to do and how can we shift out of it? It's getting ourselves to breathe into that wise adult space and the grid, when I do the grid with folks, it is about both identifying, really explicating what those adaptive stances are so people can identify and find themselves. And then we use it as a piece of therapy, like throughout all of the therapy that I do with people will be like, oh, so, you know, did you find yourself being pulled out of your grounded center place, your wise adult space and into an adaptive stance? What happened? What was that like? How did you notice it? And really help them to track and identify what that looks like. But we also spend a long time explicating what it really looks like to be in a wise adult grounded space, which is not a thing that a lot of us really know what that looks like. Um, and so we spend a lot of time in RLT talking about the difference between adaptive child and wise adult, which you'll sometimes hear us refer to as first consciousness, second consciousness. The second consciousness is the grounded wise adult, the part of us that is warm, that is flexible, that um, can uh, stand up to stand up for ourselves, but with warmth for ourselves and our partner. That is not rigid. That can be yielding. That can like it's that's um, that's that uh, second consciousness. That's that wise adult stance. Let me say about that though that it's not that the wise adult is a pushover. It's not when we are in that spot, we don't just like give up. It's about being able to stand up for yourself with warmth for yourself and your partner and savvy. And yeah, it, it reminds me of something that I've been studying a little bit. It's called in terms of self-compassion as a, yes, a skill. And there's like there, she talked, there's a researcher, Kristen Neff that talks about mm -hmm. it, it as yin and yang energy. And so yes. The yang is that more masculine energy where you're standing up for yourself, even in the face of hostility or harm, mm -hmm. but with kind of warmth and not fear. Like, okay, mm -hmm. it kind of reminds me, or one of the, I mean, a very extreme example would be standing up for yourself if you had been assaulted. Uh-huh, absolutely. And, you know, advocating for yourself or being involved maybe in some sort of um, in, in the Me Too movement in some ways. Mm -hmm. Some of mm -hmm. that standing up is sort of like um, mm -hmm. a more, I don't know, masculine. It isn't, yes, it isn't mm -hmm. just always about being um, maybe more yielding or gentle. Yes, um, no. It's, it's about knowing when it's called for, right? Like it's about knowing, Terry mm -hmm. tells a story in... Um, in uh, I just don't want to talk about it. I think is the book where he talk, tells this story about how he ha was visiting um, the Maori. I think it, well, I, sh I shouldn't tell the story if I can't tell it right. But uh, he he was working with um, he was working with um, some elders in a tribe in Africa and was asking them, "How do you know, like?" what what is the essence of being a man is is being a man is being a man um being strong like a warrior 
or or is it being um, soft and yielding and nurturing? What's more important? And this elder smiled and said, it is neither of those. It's knowing when to do both. I love knowing, it. It's knowing when is this called for. And right, so like that, we do tend to associate standing up for yourself or individuality um, or, you know, stoicism with masculinity. They uh-huh. tend to be very parallel. And so by and large, um, folks that identify um, as female um, haven't been well socialized on how to stand up for themselves. Guys often, guys, or I should say folks that have been socialized masculine, often don't have as much of a difficulty standing up for themselves. Some some do. I don't want to make you know broad sweeping general statements. But part of it is learning how to stand up in not the rigid, like traditionally masculine way. It's about learning how to stand up with warmth. And for I need to put a boundary here. Yeah. And for folks who have been socialized feminine, they, they have often not been socialized well. And so they tend to take on sort of the masculinized way of standing up for themselves with harshness. And so it is just like you said, Jan, it's about standing up for yourself with, with clear, firm boundaries, but also warm regard and, and saying like, look, you know, um, honey, I think I know what you were trying to say there. And it was really hard for me the the way you said it. Would you be willing? Would you be willing to just say it in kind of a different way? It, it would it would make all the difference in the world to me. So it's not that you just like are fine with however your partner does it. It's that you learn how to stand up for yourself, but you do it in such a way that you are not um, either going into a grandiose or shame-based spot you're not walling off and being overprotected, but you're also not losing yourself in a boundarylessness um, of kind of like, I'll do whatever you want kind of place. That it is really about being clear that I can stand up for myself and I can be in relation with you at the same time. It doesn't have to mean that there's a cutoff or there's a harshness or there's a break. It's that I can stand up for myself and, and really hold you in warm regard as I do that. Yeah, I've heard him talk about this, and I hear this complaint in ter- like in terms of like the wi- maybe women's movement or this idea mm-hmm. where women are becoming more assertive and don't have quite the relational finesse that he's looking for that he's trying to coach you to. And so you know, you sort of do come off in a way that's maybe more strident, or yeah, um, men are always complaining about uh, tone, or that's yeah. a, more yeah. like yeah. So women, so it's like, how can women, yeah, get in this yeah. second consciousness response? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that in general, um, women have been socialized in general, again, feminine identified folks uh, in general have been socialized to um, communicate with cajoling or um, over accommodation, a kind of like um, a kind of like 
um, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of come out sideways to you and, and you won't really know if I'm ever really upset until I'm really, really upset. Um, and so what RLT is trying to do is to just be able to say, yeah, like, yes, I am, I, 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 I am frustrated and I am upset and I can still be warm to you, even though I'm being really clear about what is, about what it is or is not working well for me. And that's one of the things that we we also teach around languaging is about really talking about what works and what what like feels good to you and what doesn't feel good to you and not what is right or wrong. That tends to be another thing that um is tricky in relationship is that there's one person who has an idea about what how, how what's right in the relationship how they want it to be and that there is um that actually like it's about saying this is what what works well for me not what you're doing wrong this is like that thing doesn't feel so good to me it doesn't work so well for me instead of you're 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 clearly in the wrong about this does that make sense as I'm saying it? Yeah, I was thinking about that even going back to when we first started, mm-hmm. that it isn't so much like here's a laundry list of like healthy behaviors. Absolutely. It is more about is that behavior working in your marriage or this exactly relationship? Right. Because I'm yeah. seeing that it doesn't it doesn't look like it is. Yep, that's exactly right. And you know, the thing is is that RLT is uh, Terry's theoretical basis is uh, the background is you know attachment it's psychodynamic um and and it's feminist family therapy um that and that is an important part of it it's saying it's but you know feminism gets a bad rap (laughs) in a lot of ways right now um because it is it is uh associated with rigidity or harshness um and the thing is, is that that is just a masculinized way of standing up for yourself. It isn't actually like leaning into a strong and assertive way. It's just being harsh back to harshness, which does not generate warmth or relational living or intimacy. It doesn't work yeah. very well. So it's about teaching both people um, and and I'm I'm speaking in sort of heteronormative terms, and let me just say, like, um, you know, RLT works great across the spectrum of relationships. It works. I, I can work with RLT with, regardless of how folks identify from a gender standpoint, how they identify in a relational standpoint, how what their preferred relational style is. Um, like RLT works across relationship types and across gender types. When you work with people, how long do you think it takes, you know, how many sessions or weeks or months do you think it takes? I was just thinking about this to see some movement. In RLT, we expect that there should be movement pretty quickly. Um, So when I'm talking to clients, one of the things that I ask them always in the first session or two, like depending on how much time I have for assessment, um, is if three to six months from now, things felt really different 
in your relationship. Like, not that they were perfect, not that it was exactly where you wanted it to be, but you were like, yes, we are really on the road. How would you know it? What would be different? What would, what really would be different in your relationship at that point? So we are expecting that people are seeing a shift. Now that doesn't mean that they're done in therapy. Um, and, and they have to be coming pretty regularly in order for this to be the case, but we're expecting that they should feel a shift, you know, it should, it shouldn't be years. It should months that they're really starting to go, okay, I'm relating to this thing differently. Now, again, that does not mean that that's like the end of it. Cause again, this is a relational practice. And so people do, I, I, I see anybody, I see folks anywhere from three months to, you know, longer. Um, but that's generally because, you know, we're, we're working on like continuing to implement the skills. We're working on continuing to notice, oh, there's, you know, maybe there's been a flare up in their lives because something has happened. There's been a job loss or a new baby or uh, somebody's parent died or, uh, you you know, they, they've decided to move homes or one of their kids is struggling. Like any of those things can kick this stuff back up. Um, but we do expect that people should start to feel differently. They should feel like something is happening in weeks, not months. Okay. Thank you. That's helpful. And mm -hmm. I was also wondering when you do this work and you uncover um, maybe more I don't know, trauma or that, that a person really needs to do more processing of the adaptive child piece. Do you do that with them individually or do you refer them to another therapist or do, are they supposed to be doing that work with their partner present? Yes. Um, well, it's all of those things. As I'm fond of saying, it's a both and. Um, okay. Which is that I, my, I ideally like to work, um, on the those individual responses in the session with the partner present that okay. that's the ideal now that yep. isn't to say like there are there are certain things that are preconditions to couples therapy and if we run across them um active addiction is one of those things um active physical abuse um it uh like chronic infidelity that is not an agreed upon ethical non-monogamy or something, um, but like a chronic, um, difficult infidelity. Th those are all things that are preconditions that ha need to be resolved. Now I might work with, um, the client individually, if it's something that we just need to get our arms around before we can go back into couples therapy. Um, but there are certain things that I'm going to refer out for, like, if somebody is really like um, another, another thing I should say is um, unmanaged mental health conditions. Now folks are coming into my office all the time, struggling with anxiety and uh, depression. And, you know, if we can get some meds going, if we can get some um, skills in place, if we can do a little bit of individual therapy and get that under control, then we'll keep going in couples therapy. But if it becomes really like, whoa, this is, this is, um, this is going to make it very difficult for you to do the deep work of, um, shifting because right. The foundation part of, um, relational life therapy is being able to shift 
into your second consciousness, your wise adult and active addiction, um, you know, unmanaged mental health, um, active uh, physical harm in the relationship. Um, all of those things are, will, will make it so that you can't shift into your second consciousness, into your wise adult in any kind of lasting way. Those things are all like in, in the way of that. Uh, and um, for folks who are in actively abusive relationships, um, you know, certainly it just isn't safe to do that because really the primary question becomes about the, the safety of the partner who is in harm's way and not about trying to like get people to calm down their first consciousness response because if they're in danger, they are in danger and they should be acting like they're in danger. And part of what the first, what part of what second consciousness is, wise adult is, is shifting out of the sense of being in danger. Because again, the first consciousness, the, the adaptive child part is all about um, recognizing and identifying danger and saying, I'm in danger. I have to do this. Like I have to react in this way. I have to have this stance. I have to have this response because I am in danger. And it's the only self-preservation I can find when people are in actual danger we don't want to calm that down. Like they should, you know, we want to be figuring out how to get them out of actual danger. Yes. I like that. It's, it's critical to not be in danger. You can't shift out of it if yes. you are in danger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you're really kind of excited about right now in terms of your own work with relational life therapy yeah. that would be fun to talk about? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, as probably, comes through I I love this work like I this work is really really exciting to me I feel incredibly privileged to be able to do it um and uh just there is an amazing group of RLT therapists out there um I'm really excited that uh Terry has um trained a group of us who have been working um in relational life therapy for a while to be able to start to offer his relational life boot camps, relational skills boot camps. Um, and these are open to therapists if they want to go and learn more about life living, relational living. Um, these are open to couples if they want to go and uh, kind of get a kickstart, maybe as an addendum to or um, trying to figure out, do we want to start doing some re- uh, relational therapy? They're, they're great for that. Um, they're also open to individuals who um, are just wanting to work on their relational skills. So that I'm really excited because just recently um, have, we are starting to offer those. So a, a good co- friend and colleague of mine, um, Sarah Barrett, who has a practice in um, Minneapolis, she and I are going to be offering one virtually in January. So I'm looking forward to that. It's posted on Terry Real's website, terryreal.com. Um, okay. I don't have the link up to it on my website yet, but it will be up shortly. My website is honestirk.com. And I will put your website yeah. in our in our show notes too. Great. Yep. It's just my name.com. Okay. Um, and uh, so I'm really excited about that, um, that, I, that I'm going to be able to start offering so- those. So boot camp, tell us just a tiny bit. Is that 
like over a week? Is it, are they day long, a weekend? What's a boot camp? They're weekends. So they're two days. Um, and the, uh, again, kind of the, the core of the boot camps is that it is working with the part of you, like maybe you have learned a bunch of skills in the past, but it really is about trying to get in touch and work with the part of you that hasn't been able to use the skills. Um, so we do a lot of skill teaching there, but we also really work on identifying. Um, you know, we work with the grid. We, we teach people about that. We teach people how to identify themselves. We go, you know, really in depth in terms of the role of self-esteem and self-worth in um, relationship, our relationship to ourself, relationship to the world, relationship to our intimate partners, relationship to our kids. Um, and we go in depth into boundaries. Um, there are a few other concepts that we teach um, the feedback wheel. Um, yes, it, I've heard of that. I've, I've yeah. used that a little bit. I love, I've, I've actually loved that. I feel like even though I'm not trained in this type of therapy, I, um, yeah, the I've feedback used that wheel. with people. It's a, it's an awesome, it's a, it's a super awesome, um, it's a super awesome tool, tool to right. help people to do some listening. Um, and the, the feedback wheel, I should just say is, uh, I'm like looking for the, uh, the feedback wheel came through. Um, so Terry Reel's mentor was PM Melody is PM Melody. Um, and Pia Melody's um, early in life sponsor was Janet Hurley. And this is her, this was her piece. Yep. The feedback wheel. So the way that Janet Hurley uh, taught that to Pia and how Pia taught it to Terry was um, that it was a really brief tool. We've expanded it in RLT so that it, we, we, you know, um, are, it, it, it's a little bit more expansive of a tool than how it was originally designed, but it is still to its core, a very simple little communication tool. And I will tell you that when I teach this to clients, they are like thrilled to have a mechanism through which to talk to their partners. They, you know, they, they uh, talk about going home and printing it out and putting it up on their fridge and, you know, using it with their kids and, you know, teaching it to everybody around because it really is a great way of giving difficult feedback. Um, well, it is, but it's, uh, you know, what I love about it is that it gives difficult feedback, but it also takes responsibility yes, in terms absolutely. of your own hurts or your own adaptive child. Like, you know, I'm upset about this and this is how I interpreted it. And this mm -hmm. is the big story I told myself about it. That's and right. so join me and, and, you know, like you're kind of asking your partner to to take um, maybe some responsibility or to look at this thing that caused injury, but it's also mm -hmm. sort of saying, join me in understanding me that this is the way I see the world. And this is things, yes. this is the way things hurt me. And even if it, you know, you don't, yeah. maybe even if it's not like right for me to ask for this or do yes. this or whatever, <laughs> like if you want to, if we want to be in this relationship together, let's work on this. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think so often I hear, folks talking about intention, you know, in, yes. and, and, and actually that's part of the spiritual practice of relational living is to assume best intent as a thing that I work on with clients a lot is assuming the best intent of their partner. Um, how, however, really like there is a point at which, um, you know, people, 
partners can be as well-meaning as they want to be, but if they continue to do something that hurts, that their, their partner experience has hurt around, then figuring out how to talk about that is, is important. And that's what the relational, I'm, I'm sorry, that's what the feedback wheel does is it gives some languaging to like, you may have, it, it's, it takes the blame out of it um, in, in trying to communicate what you're experiencing to your partner. Instead of saying like, you did this thing and you made me feel this way, you say, here's the thing that happened and here's the story that I made up about it. And that was really painful because like once I made, you own your part of the interpretation of the experience. And that's, that's, um, that's the beauty and the difficulty of the feedback right. wheel. <laughs> um, but it's really, it's really effective. It's a beautiful tool. We also teach about um, the core negative image. We call it the CNI of your partner. Um, which is the thing where you look at your partner and you see sort of like a caricature of their most difficult qualities, right? So yes, in the boot in the boot camp, we go through like what do you think your partner's CNI is of you, and what is your CNI of your partner? Now these are all things that require a fair amount of groundedness to do. So like I don't ever recommend that people go like, oh, I wonder what is the CNI of my partner, and go home and you know, honey, I've been thinking about it. You know, like the the core negative image I have of you is. Uh, this because it's pretty painful to hear, you know, and it's a, and, and it requires a lot of grounding and a lot of, um, you know, healthy boundaries. So by the time that we talk about that at, in the boot camp, we've already done a lot of that development of solid self-worth, warm, warm empathy towards yourself and your partner, good, healthy boundaries, um, going through why have we developed these CNIs? You know, it is, it, again, it's a sort of a character. It's, it's the time when we're not assuming the best about our partner. And, and yes. it is important to know what those things are because they invariably are the stories we tell themselves ourselves about the people that we love and live with. Right. And, and what I understand about them too, is that they have a bit of a truth in them. I mean, that, oh, yeah, you know, for that sure. we're not, mm -hmm. <laughs> so that these characters that we have for each other, you know, they're, they're not really describing the next door neighbor. They're, yeah, they are somewhat reflective of us, whether we like it or not. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting because often, um, and not always, but often when we do this, um, the core negative image work with folks, and we ask them, you know, what do you think your partner's coordinated image of you is? They, they, we generally know because it is yes. a kernel of truth. You know, it is, yes. it, again, it's us on a very bad day in the worst light. You know, it's like, you know, you're, you're on the boardwalk in Coney Island and somebody does a caricature of you and everything is kind of like grotesque and out of proportion. <laughs> That's your partner CNI. It's, but you know, you do have ears, right? Like it's, yes. it's like those things yes. are present. It's just not quite as blown out of proportion as in that moment, what we see. And so it's, it's both kind of, uh, being able to identify that your partner is going to see you that way and that you're going to see your partner that way. And, and again, how do we shift out of that? And also how do we ask for help when that's happening? Um, because the more that we can see our partners in the best light, the yes. more that that is reflected back to us as well. And when we're struggling with that, 
sometimes what we have to do is be able to say like, I'm not seeing you in the best light because this is kind of what's showing up and, and being able to take that in without personalizing it and knowing like, yeah, the, those are parts of me that might show up sometimes. And can I um, be responsive to what my partner is asking of me and, and uh, mediate on those parts in some ways. And so like, that's what the boot, the boot camp goes through um, all of those pieces. It goes through kind of the core relational living, what relational living is, self-esteem, boundaries, um, how so to find your first and second consciousness, how to shift from your adaptive child into your wise adult, um, how to uh, successfully use the feedback wheel, how to give and receive the both the feedback wheel um, and the, about the CNI. And then we end up talking about kind of the crux of relational living, which is um, the um, relational reckoning that at some point we all have to face in our, in our relationship, which is that we are going to feel disappointed at times in our partners and how we manage that, those micro disappointments without turning into, um, you know, meta assessments of like all that's wrong is, is that piece of relational reckoning, which is I, I live with and tolerate the, like parts of my partner that I thought were going to be different um, because I love that say that overall, again I, li yeah. I live yeah. with and I tolerate with, yeah the parts of my partner that are disappointing um, and that I thought were going to be different because overall uh, you know by and large this is a pretty good human and um, I wrap my arms around the part of them that that works well for me and I grieve the part that I've got to tolerate about my own disappointment. And that's, that's in all relationships. And we, we've kind of been sold a bill of goods that that's not what relationships are supposed to feel like. Um, and so part of this is coming back to what is, what is a realistic uh, assessment of my relationship? And, and that doesn't mean giving up on the stuff that's important to you. It just means figure, finding a different way of talking about it and also really being able to realistically assess, you know, this is, this is the person that I'm with. Given them, given me, what, where, where do we want to go? And and there is a lot of intimacy that can be gained from that perspective. Mm -hmm. it, it sounds, one of the things that I have liked about what I've learned so far is that paradoxically, there's really like this um, not giving up, like continuing to assert, I, you know, if there's something missing in your marriage that you want, you know, continuing to sort of stand up in a relational way and asserting mm -hmm. those needs, but yet also sort of accepting that um, there are going to be these areas where you're not always going to get all the things that you did want. And mm -hmm. yep. And that in that moment that that's again, that the spiritual practice of, um, you know, grieving the micro disappointment um, without making it a, a global um, indictment of the whole relationship. To say this is just one, this is just one part, and, and um, asking yourself, you know, is is that a thing that I can live with and tolerate? And and um, you know, when we are engaged in a healthy, intimate relationship, um, where where by and large we are, uh, you know, meeting each other, and 
you know, giving each other warm regard and practicing healthy boundaries and, and, and really practicing that deep relational intimacy, um, we can really, you know, deal with some of those micro disappointments um, in, in the scale that they are like just keeping them right sized, not making them outsized because like tolerating some, the, the imperfection of other humans is uh, part of not going grandiose. Yes. Cause we're all imperfect. Oh, like what? this is like humans being humans is one of my favorite things to say. Oh, humans. humans <laughs> sounds like, sounds like your partner was being totally just a human right there. I bet that was driving you crazy. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. I also love that I heard one other thing that I heard him quote was that it feels really good to be grandiose yes. for a while. Yeah. And it really feels very awful to feel that shame. And so you're yeah. sort of like trying to yeah, balance yeah. it there. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's absolutely. a lot of great quotes. Mm -hmm. So I really, really appreciate this. And I can tell um, how much you love it and are passionate about it. And I feel like you've been igniting a lot of passion and interest in me. Oh, that's it. awesome. I'm, I'm yes. so glad to hear it. And the boot camp sounds really fun. Mm -hmm. um, yep, so we're Sarah and I are really excited to be offering that. Um, and the great thing about the boot camps are, you know, now that they are virtual, you can be anywhere. And, and uh, you don't, it used to be that, you know, you had to fly to New York or Boston or wherever Terry was offering them. And now not only are there people across the country and, you know, across the world, actually, um, I just was um, talking to a colleague who is in London and just offered a boot camp, right? So like, it's, it's happening all over the place. Um, and you can go to the one that fits your schedule. And um, there's a lot more of them being offered now. And uh, so we're really hoping to make um, this way of living much more accessible for folks because it is, it is, uh, you know, without hubris, it is life-changing. And, oh, and that's what we're hoping is right, right. that the more people that have access to this, uh, the more people can live relationally with each other, which, you know, I think we can all look around and say, we could all use a little more we of that right now. That. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for joining us this week on Talking Your Way to Change. You can also visit our Facebook page. You can subscribe to the show on Anchor or iTunes so that you never miss an episode. If you found value in this show, we would appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or you could just simply tell a friend. I need to alert everyone that this podcast is not meant as a substitution for mental health treatment. So although the podcast deals with psychotherapy, this is not your psychotherapy. Okay, thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Dr. Banker. Thanks for joining us this week on Talking Your Way to Change. You can also visit our Facebook page. You can subscribe to the show on Anchor or iTunes so that you never miss an episode. If you found value in this show, we would appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or you could just simply tell a friend. I need to alert everyone that this podcast is not meant as a substitution for mental health treatment. So although the podcast deals with psychotherapy, this is not your psychotherapy. Okay, thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Dr. Banker.